study through 1 Corinthians, come to this next section here. Last week we looked at the first five verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and in those passages, Paul talked about the cross, the crucifixion, and the central role that the cross plays in our lives and in his preaching, that it's all about what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, in the rest of this chapter, he continues to draw conclusions and give us teachings to understand more and more what it has to do with us. And so this morning, we will be looking at verses 6 through 10. But before we do, I'm going to ask you to do something that you might feel uncomfortable doing. You might think it's a little weird or new agey or whatever, but I want you to close your eyes for just a minute. I mean it. Stop looking at me. Close your eyes. Even if you're not going to play, close your eyes. And I want you to imagine your best life possible, your best future possible, all the problems that you're struggling with right now being fixed, all the things that you've always wanted that have never come to pass, they're there now, a part of your life. Your wildest dreams, your greatest imaginations all coming to pass. Picture what your life would be like, what your future would be like if that happened. Okay, you got that? Now you can open your eyes again. Because the great news, as we see in God's Word today, this morning, is that what God has prepared for you is way better than that. Maybe you quit having an imagination a long time ago, but you know, God still has a plan for you that's way better than your best imagination. Beginning with verse 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, after having talked about the fact that human wisdom doesn't cut it, he says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Paul quoting Isaiah in chapter 64, and he says, you have not seen, and you have not heard, and your heart can't even fathom what God has in store for you, the amazing plan that He has for you. It's important for us to believe that. It's important for us to get a grasp on that because what we believe about God's plans for us determines to a great extent what we think about God. If we believe that God is someone who just loves to crush you like a bug, then his plans sound bad. Oh, the future is gloomy. It's awful. It's horrible. Life's just going to get worse and worse. It's going downhill. We're in a death spiral because God's in control. 
and he just destroys everything in his path. Who looks forward to that? But if we believe that God is a God who loves us passionately and who's absolutely brilliant in knowing what's best for us, then we can go, he really wants to do good things. He really desires to see our lives follow on a plan that he devised long before we were even around, before the world began, before this age even started. God had a plan that took into account all of the mess-ups that we would do, all of our frailties and weakness, and then he said, use your imagination, and then let me just tell you this, it's way better than that. Paul talks about this when talking to the Ephesians and praying for them, and he says that God will do beyond what you could ever ask or think. So those things that when you were imagining your best future... He goes, no, it's so much better than that, that when you're trying to think how good the future is, you're going to miss out. It's not going to be good enough. You can't even think of this stuff. Every once in a while in this life, things happen to us that we go, I can't even, I didn't expect that at all. It hit me by surprise. Who would have known? Who would have expected it? Well, that's the future that God has prepared for people who simply love him. But in order for us to believe in that future, we need to believe in that God. We need to understand how great he is. Now, there are people, Christians and others, who emphasize imagining a great future. And that's not a bad thing. But so often, they're emphasizing the confidence that we have in ourselves to bring about that great future. And that's where the problem lies. I can't make it happen myself. I can imagine it, but just imagining it doesn't make it happen. There's something that God has to do to make it happen. I can't do it myself. But I think it's a mistake when we react against all those positive people and we go, so we're going to be the negative people. You know, Campus Crusade, Bill Bright, who was the director of Campus Crusade for so many years until he went to be with the Lord just recently, they prepared a way of witnessing to people called the four spiritual laws. And those four spiritual laws, the first one was the law that says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, the second law says man is sinful and separated from God, thus he cannot know and experience God's love for his life. But they started off with God has a wonderful plan for your life. And a lot of people were very critical of that in witnessing. They said, oh, you don't want to come up to people and tell them God has a wonderful plan for their life. You need to tell them about hell. So they'll appreciate, even if God's plan isn't that great, it's better than burning forever. And so a lot of times the Christian presentation of the gospel is almost that. Like, you know, yeah, life stinks, but it's going to get a lot worse if you don't do the right thing, and then you'll squeak by by the skin of your teeth, and you'll be okay, and we'll all survive. And then we think in terms of everything that God has for us is in heaven. So we don't expect him to work down here, and that's a mistake too, because we can't even fathom what heaven is like. Most of the images that I see of heaven, frankly, aren't that attractive. 
I'm not that into streets of gold. I think it might be fun to sit on a cloud and play a harp for a few minutes, you know. And, you know, maybe even if it's heaven's modernized, I'll find out that when I get to heaven, I can play the guitar perfectly. You know, okay. So you work your way through that solo and stairway to heaven, and you go like, okay, what do I do now? I heard a pastor who was talking to his little son. His son goes, what's heaven like? And he goes, oh, it's going to be beautiful. He said, we're just going to worship God and praise him forever. And his son goes, that's it? <laughs> and he goes, well, yeah, you'll just, you'll love worship. It's just one big eternal worship service. And his son goes, well, can't we ever just stop for a few minutes and mess around? <laughs> We are so out of touch with whatever it is that makes heaven heaven, but the one thing that we do know about heaven is it's going to be way better than you could ever think. I have people ask me, is there going to be surfing in heaven? And I always say, you know what? If you want it, it'll be there. If you decide you don't want it, you won't miss it. When little kids sometimes and sometimes tragically even older people ask if they're going to have a dog in heaven, the best answer I ever found for that is to, rather than to talk about souls and spirits and all that stuff, is just to say, you know what, honey, if you get to heaven and you want a dog, you'll have a dog. That's what heaven is, but heaven, the kingdom of God, it starts now. And God wants to do awesome things in our lives now. He doesn't want us to just go, look, just suck it up and wait and hurt, and when you get to heaven, everything will be fine. God's plan for you started, it doesn't start in heaven. It didn't even start when you accepted Christ. God's plan for you started before he invented you, before he invented the world. And that was his plan. Now, here in this passage, it says another thing that's interesting about this amazing plan of God. In verse 7, when he says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained, that means he predetermined it, before the ages for our glory. That's kind of a strange thought. We know what glory is. Glory is all those lights that shine forth from God. Glory is when you look at God and you go, wow, amazing. Glory is something that when, you know, Moses got too close to God, the glory reflected off on Moses in such a way that he had to walk around with a bag on his head for a long time because he was glowing with that glory of God. When we talk about God's glory, we usually make it as opposed to our glory. Okay, you can either have your glory or you can have God's glory. God can be glorified or you can be glorified. That's the choice. But you know what? The Bible says that God wants to glory in us and through us, and, and as he says here, it's for your glory. It's something that God wants to do for you. His plan is for you to be glorified, for people to be able to see you and go, wow, go amazing. Because when they see you glorified, they realize, man, some God did that. God's plan for you is glory. His plan for you is victory. His plan for you is fulfillment and joy and way more, way beyond whatever you could ask or think. Now, just in case you think this is just one fluke passage, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 
Paul talks about, and when we eventually get to 2 Corinthians, you'll see it. It's a great chapter. 2 Corinthians 3 talks about how people read the Word of God and missed the point. They read the Word of God and couldn't get it. And then it says, but as God works in our lives, we behold as in a glass, as in a mirror. We look and we see God, and we are changed from glory to glory. We become glorified as we see his glory in his word. Now, Jesus over in John 17, in fact, turn over there with me for a moment. John 17 was the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Incredible passage of scripture. Now, remember, I'll jog your memories. When we started 1 Corinthians, I said the whole book of 1 Corinthians is basically Paul trying to get the people to get along. There was a lot of division. Everyone thought they were better than everyone else. A lot of judgmentalism, a lot of abuse, a lot of battling and fighting and competition. And so he's trying to make them one. Now, in John 17, Jesus' last long prayer before he went to the cross, Jesus prayed over and over again for the unity of the believers. But it's in the context of And look at beginning with verse 1 of chapter 17. It says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. Verse 5, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So now we're going, okay, yeah, that's, that's what we're talking about, glory. It's all for God. It's all to spring forth from the Trinity. But check out verse 22. And, well, we'll go back up to verse 20 because this is where Jesus prays for us. He was praying for the disciples, and then he goes, and now, Father, I'm going to pray for the people who will become Christians as a result of the testimony of the disciples. So he's talking about you if you became a Christian through reading what the, what the apostles had to say. He says, verse 20, I don't pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And check this out, verse 22, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one as we are one. And in verse 23, that they may be made perfect in one. Wow. God's glory isn't just for God. He wants to share it. He wants us to shine forth with with that same kind of glory. That just completely turns upside down our common notions of glory. We tend to think it's like, okay, I need to be nothing, and then God can be everything. We think of God, as I often say, like a pro wrestler in an interview, taking all the glory to himself, not wanting to share the spotlight with anyone else. And we have that notion because our experience in life so often is of that sort of thing. People trying to attract glory to themselves. And we say, you need to humble yourself so God can exalt you. And boy, is that the truth. And yet, the one thing about self-glorification that's not wrong is you want the right things. Within each one of us is the desire for glory. 
within each one of us is the desire of, for significance and celebration. Of We all would like, whether we admit it or not, we would like for someone to look at us and say, wow, that's amazing. But you know, that's exactly what God wants for you too. The deal is, the more you try to do it, the less it'll happen. There's nothing less impressive than someone who's trying too hard to bring glory to themselves. And yet, understand that end, that glorious life, that abundant life, that life that, as he describes it here in 1 Corinthians, as eye hasn't seen it, ear hasn't heard it, it hasn't even entered to the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. God's glory is his design for your life. And that doesn't just mean for people to look at you and not even see you, to see God. His glory is for you and for me personally. He has an amazing plan for our lives. So the problem is, why do so few people experience that plan and experience that glory? Why is it that for us it just seems to never work, to never click? Well, as we see in this passage, there are a lot of people who miss out on that plan. There are a lot of people who will come way short of all that God wants to do in our lives. In this case, he's talking specifically about probably two categories of people. The Romans who were brilliant and academic, and the Jewish leaders who were deeply committed and religious. And each of them, in their own way, trying to find glory. For those Romans, through building up their empire, wanting the world to see Rome and go, wow. Wanting to be able to brag about being a Roman citizen, and people would go, that's awesome. That's amazing. The desire for glory was what was driving the empire to continue to expand. At the same time, there were these Jewish leaders who had the law of God and had his word and the promises of God, and they felt that through a deep devotion to God and a legalistic following of his word, doing the right things, jumping through the right hoops, that somehow they'd look good. And they were proud of themselves. As soon as they would do something for someone else, look at me. They would honk the horns and introduce themselves. Look what I'm doing. I'm helping people. I'm a good person. And so through all of this, sad to say, an attempt at glory, but they missed the point, and they ultimately missed the glory. Because as he says, verse 6, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age nor of the rulers of this age. The wisdom of this age, the Roman wisdom, the rulers of this age, the Jewish religious leaders, religion doesn't cut it, academics doesn't cut it, because they, the end of verse 6, they're coming to nothing. There's a plan. There's a road. There's a way to get where you can experience all that God wants you to experience but there's also a path, and Jesus tells us it's really broad, and it leads nowhere. It's a dead-end path. It's a, a way of going nowhere. Now, there are some people who are on that road just because they've given up. I'm so burned out. I have no hope. I give up on the plan. 
And to do that is to go nowhere, no doubt about it. But there are many people who, with good intentions, desires for glory that are, we are built in with that desire for glory, and yet they're on a road that leads to nowhere as they're trying to get there through being good enough, through being accomplished enough, through whoever standard of success that you want to use, sad to say, that won't work. It leads nowhere. And some of us have tried through all that we can think of to make our lives the best that they can be. And we've run into a wall, and we realize the glory isn't going to happen this way. Others of us, through a heart for God, have decided let's just be as spiritual as we can. Let's be devoted to Him. Let's discipline our lives and stop sinning. And and let's just be these incredible religious people. And all that happens as we go on that path is we become discouraged with our progress. And so then we start to find out, you know, the only way for me to feel good about myself is for me to point the finger at you and notice that you're even worse off than I am. And so through religion, all we do is we become judgmental and divisive, leading nowhere. But, he says there in verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. I mean, that's why people miss it. It's mysterious. It's, it's hidden in a way that it isn't obvious and apparent. It's like those posters that have the, all the weird squiggly lines and it just looks like nothing. But then if you cross your eyes and kind of look spaced out at it, all of a sudden a horse jumps out off of it, a a three-dimensional picture, and you're like, wow, it was there, but there's a mystery to it. This is kind of the way it is. You can look right at it and miss it unless you look at it right. So he said, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had understood, do you think those people, I mean, what was the desire of the Roman soldiers? Glory. What was the desire of the Jewish leaders? Glory. And yet they worked together to kill the Lord of glory. And for the next 2,000 years, people look back and they try to argue over whose fault it was, the Romans or the Jews. And they've come under quite a bit of criticism from all of us who don't realize that we kill the Lord of glory also. It was us too. As we sin in a frail attempt to find glory on our own apart from God, it's this ironic amazing truth that the Lord of glory gets killed in the process. Of course, the irony increases when we realize that it was through the Lord of glory being killed that we could receive glory as well. But as he talks about the Lord of glory, that's a a phrase that most theologians believe is referring back to Psalm 24. And I'll just read this to you. You can look it up later if you want. But it's a beautiful psalm that talks about God as the king of glory. It says, The earth is the Lord in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. And he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? 
or Yahweh, Jehovah, or who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. He is the one who not only has all glory, but can give glory. He knows how to spread it around. He knows how to share it. That's what makes him the king of glory or the Lord of glory, God himself. And yet, what we do so often is, even as the Romans did, even as the Jewish leaders did at that point, we go, I want glory so bad, I'm going to kill the Lord of glory. And I don't know what it is that causes us to want to destroy that which is good for us. Well, I have a good idea of what it is. It's called sin. It's that nature that we inherited whereby we want to do stupid things. And, and so whatever, and you know, think of it, of people who have whatever they always wanted. There are people who said that, you know what, my life will be complete if I can just have a good job, and a family, a couple of 2.3 kids, you know, house with a picket fence, and I'll be happy. And God miraculously blinds the eyes of another person who agrees to marry you, and you have these, <laughs> you have these kids, and you get this house, and it's going up in value, and you put a picket fence around it, and you're sitting there going, boy, this is awesome. And then you go, hmm. And somehow, some way, you manage to destroy it. You do things that you know will cost you your glory. And you sacrifice it. And you squash it. And you just go, wow, boom, I break it. I do things that will destroy my relationship, destroy my kids, cause me to lose my job. I'll get to the point where the house doesn't matter. Then I'll lose that. And who killed it? We did so often. I remember one time we were out at Murrieta, right when Calvary first bought Murrieta. And, oh, it was a spooky place. It was, it was really interesting. I mean, we, we, when we bought that property, I think it came with like lots of demons and stuff. But you could, it was just spooky to walk around. We were in this one room, and there was a spider web that was just incredible, like 20 feet across big, huge spider web, and the light was coming in just right so that this thing shone, and there's this big old spider in the middle of it, and I think it was Carl Bentz looked at it, and he goes, man, isn't God great? Look at this incredible design, and Pastor Chuck goes, yeah, that's amazing, and then boom, smash the spider and (laughs) the web and everything, but so often... It's like, that's what we do with our lives. We go, wow, I can't believe I'm here. Now, what can I do to mess it up? What can I do to listen? It's not intentional. It's almost instinctual that we destroy the very thing that is a part of God's plan for our life. 
sometimes the glory that he has for us. We do it. It comes naturally to us. So on the one hand, God has a plan, but secondly, we have ways of missing that plan. Missing it by not believing that he loves us that much, by giving up on hope, missing it by destroying those things that he brings into our lives, you know, killing the king of glory. Every time we sin, every time we go against what God tells us, we are doing the things that killed the Lord of glory, and we are also killing opportunities that he has to bless us and to enrich our lives. It's important for us to see when we do what he tells us is a bad idea, what he tells us that is sin, I forbid you to do that. He does it because he knows it's bad for us. And when we do it, once again, it's as if we're killing the king of glory because we are killing what the king of glory wants to do in our lives. And we begin to miss out more and more on his amazing plan. So we see that God has an awesome plan We see that it's pretty easy to miss it as well. But the last thing I want to look at this morning in closing is, so how can you get the glory? How can you live a life that fulfills that amazing plan that he has for us? And it's really a work of the Spirit. And we're going to see next week as we go into the rest of the chapter. But in verse 10, it says, God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. And the rest of the chapter is going to be an explanation of what spiritual wisdom is as opposed to this flimsy, earthly version of wisdom. But there's another word that I want to call your attention to because I think it's just central to this whole discussion. And we kind of went through it quickly. But there in verse 6, he says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. So he says, the pathway to glory is a pathway of maturity. Now, the King James Version translates this word instead of mature, translated as perfect. You go, perfect? How could I ever do that? Mature is a stretch. I mean, I suppose that I'm getting somewhat more mature. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid, but eventually... You know, I've noticed lately I look a lot sadder when I look in the mirror, and I think that goes along with getting older, so maybe I am getting more mature. But it's actually, the word doesn't really mean mature, and it doesn't mean perfect, really. It's the Greek word teleos, which comes from the Greek root telos. Telos is the Greek word that means done, the end, it's finished. You know, teleology studies the the study of the end of things. A telescope is trying to look to the end. It's trying to see the limit of what we can see. So what he's saying in a way is, what it takes is for you to be finished, for you to be done. Have you run out of ideas? Have you run out of things that you can do? Have you come to the end of yourself? and decided to stake your faith completely in the one who died on the cross for you? Do you believe it? When, when Jesus hung on the cross, one of the last things he said was the Greek word tetelestai. Again, that's a participle form of, of the same word here. And it's translated in the English, it is finished. 
They used to use that word to stamp on a document when it was paid in full. So are you one of these teleos people? Maturity is not learning more and more stuff. Maturity is when you realize it ended at the cross. What Jesus Christ did for you then opens the door to glory, opens the door to God's hand in your life. Stop trying to do it yourself. Stop believing that somehow your self-glorification is going to work. Instead, glory, as Paul said, I just glory in the cross. I glory that it's all done. Everything that I will ever do that's wrong, it's forgiven by God because I put my faith in Him. I made myself, by signing up for Him, by praying to Him, I made myself one of the teleos, one of the people who are done. And the question that He would ask all of us is, are you you done yet? Are you through trying? Can you believe that the cross worked? That glory really comes from the cross? A friend of mine was out surfing one time with Mike Harris. Mike is the pastor of Calvary Chapel Beachside over in Huntington Beach. And Mike, is a, he, he's a, a dear friend of mine, and he's also a tough guy. He's a real stud. And they were out surfing at the pier, and there, were, there was a guy out there who was probably kind of drunk and weird, and he was starting to mouth off to people, and then he started hitting guys for no reason and just being a jerk. And so Mike paddled over to the guy And he goes, come on, mellow out, just enjoy, it's a beautiful day, there's plenty of waves for everyone, just chill out. And the guy cussed at Mike and took a swing at him. And so Mike, the next thing you know, he grabs the guy by his shoulders and just picks him up off his board and he stuck him under the water. And he's holding him under the water, ministering to him, and (laughs) he waited until bubbles were coming out and... He pulls the guy up, and snot's coming out of his nose, and he's coughing, and, and Mike goes, are you done? And he goes, you are, and starts cussing at him again, so just dips him back in the water, holds him. It took three baptisms, ultimately, <laughs> until Mike pulled the guy up, are you done? Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> and the guy just paddled in and left. But, you know, a lot of times, that's what life is doing to us. It's like we're sputtering and gasping for air and trying to do it. And then we come up, are you done? No, I think I can still do this. Okay, here you go. In the name of the sun, you know. So the real question for each of us is, in our sputtering and in our desperation, are you done yet? Have you finally come to the point where you realize you can't bring glory to yourself? Nothing that you can do will be ever enough. None of your religion will suffice. None of your accomplishments will ever ultimately give you that satisfaction that becomes a part of your life when you realize that God's plan for you started before you were ever born, but it was paid for on the cross of Calvary. And now he wants you to be on that path of appreciating and enjoying the wonder of his plan. But it happens when you go, I'm done. It's not me anymore. I can't do this. God, I need you to do it. Now, you may say, yeah, I'm done all right. I've given up. But that's not where he wants you either. He wants you to say, I don't have to do it, so I want you to do it. 
God, I want to submit to your amazing plan. God, I believe that somehow, despite whatever's happened in my life, I believe that you can bring a wow factor into my life. Now, some of us are young and have a lot of years ahead of us. Others of us feel like our better days are behind us. That's what we usually say. The truth is, your better days aren't behind you. That's the amazing thing about God's plan for your life. Unless you can tell me that the life that you've lived is so unbelievable that in every way you've accomplished everything you ever hoped for, many things you didn't, if you say that, then I'll go, great, I'm impressed. But for most of us, we look backwards and we go, there were some great moments. There were some cool things that happened. But the truth is, My story isn't even important enough to write in a book or make a movie of it. It's just kind of ordinary. And God says, well, what I have for you is beyond what you could ever ask or think. My plan for you goes beyond your limitations. And if you haven't experienced that yet, then God has some awesome things he wants to do in your life. He wants the rest of your life, however old you are, to be better than whatever it was before. And then that life will sail on for eternity. But it starts now as we say, put me on your path. I want your dreams and desires and wishes and hopes to be mine. And I want to live that wow life. What a, what a marvelous invitation from a God who loves us, who says, I'll do that for you. I want to glory you. I want to bless you your life. Just chill out. Let me do it. Let's pray. Lord, we try to imagine what you're going to do. We do our best to be optimistic and to look forward to hopes and dreams, and yet we realize even that comes so far short. Our imagination comes so far short of your imagination your creativity, your power, your love. So God, we want to come to the end of ourselves so that we will be those who have finished what we can do. And now through that finish, we're starting to let you work your eternal plan in our lives. Oh God, give us a vision that goes beyond our limitations, our capacities. And I pray that as we understand how great you are, we understand that that has direct relationship to how good you want to be in our lives. And so we surrender to you and we ask you to fulfill your plan in our lives. We reject our own plans. We let go of our own glory. And we believe that God you can do so much more than that. Your plans for us so much better than ours. Help us to stay on that path, not the path that leads nowhere, but the path that leads to glory. In Jesus' name, amen.